0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. going to continue our study of the sacrifices. Uh, we have for the past couple of Lord's Supper evenings... I've been studying on the atonement, but I decided that we would just hold that for a little bit because I couldn't think of a better subject that we could talk about than the sacrifices. Uh, They are a symbol of Christ just as the Lord's Supper is a wonderful symbol of Christ and there are two beautiful elements that we have in the supper. So the Lord's Supper is our symbol of Christ just as the Old Testament sacrifices the people in that time Uh, That was their symbol of Him. And thankfully, we understand these symbols better than they did the ones that they were accustomed to in those sacrifices. In Hebrews chapter 1, the author wrote, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, "...whom He appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the world." The author says that God spoke in divers ways, in different ways, in times past. And today He speaks to us through His Son. His Son is the living Word. And in the book of Leviticus, we see God speaking, God revealing Himself in other ways than in the written Word. Now in our day, we don't have any revelation but the written Word... Because God doesn't show himself in other ways. He's already told us that the word is sufficient for everything that we need to know about him. And so before there was a written word, God did speak in other ways. At times he spoke in dreams and visions. Sometimes God was even more direct as he would appear to people in theophanies. As when he spoke to Moses at the burning bush or to Joshua just before the conquest of Jericho. And as Israel went through the wilderness wanderings, God was there, in, His presence was there in a, in a pillar of cloud, by a pillar of fire, rather by night, to lead them in a pillar of cloud by day. And that was God speaking to them in another way besides the written word. So God did speak in different ways. Well, in this text in Leviticus, this is another way that God spoke, and that is God revealed his character and his work in sacrifices that were made by the Hebrew people. Hebrews says that God in these last days has spoken to us through his Son, and so Christ came, and he was visibly present, and he spoke. Well, in the Old Testament, he was also present, but he was present in the symbols. Uh, These are symbols of Christ in the work that he would do on behalf of fallen man. Now, if you've ever wondered about the origin of the title of the book, Leviticus means pertaining to the Levite, the tribe of priests. Levites, of course, are descendants of one of the sons of Jacob named Levi. Leviticus is actually a transliteration of the Septuagint title of the book. And this book is about the duties of Levites, specifically the duties of the priest in offering sacrifices And our study is the sacrifices of the Levitical priesthood. And it was the priest's duty to superintend all of the offerings and to consecrate them unto the Lord. Now, if you'll look at verse number 3 in in chapter 1, this is the first of five sacrifices. This is called the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering. And it was called that because the entire animal was consumed on the altar. All of it went up in sacrifice. And so there was nothing left of the animal. Well, that's not true of the other sacrifices. In a moment, we'll talk a little bit more about that and review the significance of it. And I noted last time that it's good that the other sacrifices were not that way in character. Not everything was consumed, because if it was, then the priests would have a very difficult time in, in making their living. That's because they were given a portion of these sacrifices as their sustenance. Now, as as just a side note for your learning, I'd like to point this out. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 49 for just a moment. In this chapter, you may be familiar that uh, Jacob blessed his sons before his death. And he says something very interesting here about Simeon and Levi. Uh, Their blessing actually looks more like a curse. This is Genesis 49 and beginning in verse number 5. Simeon and Levi are brethren... Instruments of cruelty are in their habitations. O my soul, come not thou into their secret, under their assembly, mine honor. Be not thou united. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they dig down a wall. Cursed be their anger, for it was fierce, and their wrath, for it was cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Now I'll leave it to you uh, to re- do a little bit further reading to find out what the cruelty is that he talks about here. But rather than to look at that, I'd like for us to look at just the last part of the verse, uh, verse number uh, 7. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Well, the tribe of Simeon was scattered mostly throughout southern Judah. Levi was given no territorial borders like the rest of Israel. Instead, they were given cities that were throughout the land of Israel. And since the Levites were scattered, it was the duty of the other Israelites to bring their, their offerings, their sacrifice, and then the priests would take a part of those sacrifices as their food. Now, their occupation was to be the ministers of God's people at the tabernacle, and so they weren't farmers and they weren't merchants. Now, I also want to note, notice verse number 13 back in Leviticus chapter 1 and review this for just a moment. We start at verse number 12 in Leviticus chapter 1. That says, regarding this offering, it says, "...and he shall cut it into his pieces with his head and his fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the inwards and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar." It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire. Of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now, the burnt offering was a sweet savor offering. There, There is a distinction between sweet savor and non sweet savor. In the sweet savor offerings, there is no view of sin. This offering pictures the perfection of Christ who had no sin, and so you don't picture sin in it. Rather, it's Christ in his character as a perfect man, the one who is always obedient to his Father. So there is no picture of Christ, the sin bearer, in the sacrifice. But we do see, as we talked about last week, the word atonement. And usually when we think of atonement, uh, we use it in terms of Christ paying the penalty for our sins. But here in this chapter, this is atonement in the larger sense, in in looking at the other parts of what Christ did in satisfaction to God. And so this is not his penal substitution, that is, Dying as a a penal offering, as the penalty for sin, but rather uh, this is Christ in that perfection. And so you see the other, the penal substitution in non-sweet savor offerings. And so the distinction distinction between these two offerings actually refers to the smell. A sweet savor offering is sweet smelling. Of course, that's figurative. It means that everything that Christ did was pleasing to His Father, His person and His work were a lovely scent to the Father. But whenever sin is in view, the smell is bad. God hates sin, and thus, those are offerings that are called non-sweet savor, or, if we just put it in our terms, bad, bad bad-smelling offerings. I wish I, we did cover this the last time, and I wish I, I had two or three hours on each of these sermons that we could just keep all the thoughts together because the continuity of it is important. But I don't have that time, and I don't think that Any of you would want to sit here through all of that. And so the best that we can do is just remember and just keep going on. I'll do my best in the reviews to remind you. And do you do your best from week to week to remember what's been said. Now, the important part of our learning is that the symbols are things that we might not otherwise talk about. If we didn't investigate, if we didn't go into the Old Testament, if we didn't wonder why did they do all these things, then... We just wouldn't talk about this. And so I often hear people say, well, I've been reading my Bible and I get to Exodus and I, and I get to Leviticus and I just get bogged down. I don't understand what's going on. What is that all about? I find it very, very strange. Well, when we study the Bible and learn these things, we find how fascinating they are to see how they dovetail into New Testament teaching. Now, this first offering is a burnt offering. So what was it for? Well, it is sweet savor, and since now all of you are experts on sweet savor and non-sweet savor, then you know that what this offering is going to show is some beauty of Christ, some perfection that He has as the perfectly obedient servant of His Father. And so in the first part of our outline, we discussed all of this. We discussed the, the object of the offering, that it is the whole burnt offering, which again means that the entire animal was consumed. And that represents that Christ gave His all, that He came to do His Father's will, and every part of Him was consumed doing everything that the Father gave Him to do. In His humanity, He never resisted, nor uh, did He have any desire to resist the Father. And in His divinity, He perfectly fulfilled the eternal plan that was in the mind of God in the Trinity from the very beginning before the world was created. He was both God and man, there were two separate natures in him. There were two different wills in him. Different wills, but wills that were in agreement. And so in his humanity, he never resisted what the Father wanted him to do. And in his divine nature, he was willing to step down from his throne in heaven to be made in the likeness of men. And so he lived and he died as a man, never turning away from this great weight of responsibility that was placed on him. And so this offering speaks of his complete devotion. Now look at verses 6 through 9. And he shall flay the burnt offering, and cut it into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire upon the altar, and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priest, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head, and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Now the text describes how that Aaron and his sons would take every part of the animal. And it describes the different parts. And we may wonder, well, why does God tell us about the parts. Why doesn't God just say, take all of that animal, put that animal on the altar and burn it all up? God doesn't say that. Instead, He says, take the head, and take the fat, and take the inwards and the legs. Why does God do that? Well, this is another way that God speaks to us in diverse manners, in various ways. The head represents judgment. The head stands for thought processes and decisions. Christ agreed with his Father, and his decision was to follow the Father's will. Now, you read about his life and see if you can find any reluctance on his part to do the Father's will. The first incident we read about him is in, uh, when he was 12 years old at the temple. And what was it that he said? I must be about my Father's business. Already at the age of 12 years old, he was surrendered to the Father's will. And then every doctrine that he taught was centered on the work that he would do for his father. Every place that he went, the eternal work of redemption was the focus of it. And in a moment, we'll show you how that relates to us. And they were told then to put the put the fat on the altar. Well, that, that's an interesting thing because because of how much the ancients knew about anatomy, fat is the place where energy is stored. Now, they didn't know about glycogen and. Carbohydrates and proteins and that they weren't they weren 't chemists, but they noticed that when the fat content goes down, so does the energy. Well, what does that mean to Christ in the picture of Christ? It means that all of his energy that all of his vitality all of his strength was put into. His devotion to the Father. And so Jesus, in His life, perfectly did what the Old Testament said to do, and that is to love love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all of thy soul, and all of thy might, or put all of it into it. That was first said in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And then the Bible says the inwards; Those are the entrails. That's the organs of the digestive system. These are the bowels. The ancients believed that the bowels were the seed of emotions. Paul says in Philippians 2, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies fulfill you my joy, that ye may be like-minded, having the same love of one accord of one mind. In Colossians, he wrote, put on bowels of mercy. John said, refresh my bowels. And he spoke of bowels of compassion. And that's what we see in Christ, that he yearned for his brethren. And so we see him as he weeps over Jerusalem with bowels and emotions that are filled up completely with compassion for his people. And then finally, God says, put the legs on the altar. The legs stand for the walk. In the Bible, the walk of a person would be equivalent to his conduct. That would be the way that you live your life. And so we're told to walk with the Lord. We're told to walk circumspectly and to walk in the faith and walk in newness of life and walk in the Spirit and walk honestly. It's the way that we live our lives. And that's patterned after Christ in His walk and the way that He lived. He was perfect. And He was perfect because when He became a sacrifice, His life had to prove perfect righteousness that would be given to us by faith in Him. And so you see this this picture of Christ in His, in his total devotion to the Father, all of that animal being burned, every part, and every part of it represents something about Christ. And so all the sacrifices burned, all of it, as if Jesus is saying to us, Use me, Lord, use all of me, use me until I'm completely consumed in Your will. And that's the example that he leaves for us. This is what we find in that picture. Now, if you look at verse number 2, the interconnections of Scripture, I think, are quite intriguing. Uh, if you look at verse number 2, I'll read in Mark 7, where Jesus used a very, very strange word. In Mark 7:11, he said, But ye say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is korban, that is to say, a gift, by whatsoever Thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. Jesus said, Korban. Well, what is corban? Well, we find it actually in Leviticus 1, verse number 2. Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. If any man bring an offering, offering, there is the word Corban. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus called it a gift. And so the idea is that a sacrifice is a gift to God. And verse 4, he says, and he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering. And that shows that the one who offers the gift identifies with that offering. The root of Corban means to bring near. And so the one who brings a sacrifice comes near to God through that sacrifice. And so that's a picture of Coming close and and giving all to the Lord. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us all to draw near to Him and hold nothing back from Him. Draw near all of you, the heart, soul, soul, body, and strength. Or as the Word of God says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. And then we also discuss the way that the offering given uh, shows that Christ's sacrifice cannot be shared. That He is sufficient. It's the animal that's given. Now, the one who offers only identifies with the thing that he offers, and he can't do anything more. He can't personally suffer. Oh, he's given the offering for the suffering, uh, so he can't suffer to help himself. So there's nothing more for him to do. The animal is completely sufficient. So the man doesn't have to be burned also on that altar. And so we realize that Christ's perfection is all that we need. And so we don't ever worry about doing things like penance. There isn't anything that we can make up for. We, we can't complete anything. We, we can't go through purgatory and be purged. If we trust anything but Christ alone, then the offering will never be accepted. Well, from there, we can go on. Uh, what I've done just now is to fill in some of the holes that I left last week that gives us a more complete picture of the purpose of this offering now secondly uh, i want to to speak to you about the sacrifices selected now god gave specific instructions about the animals that he would accept what kind of animals can they bring well there's a variety of them and the variety of them is diverse because there is a diversity of people Verse number 2, speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring the offering of the cattle, even of the herd, and of the flock. In verse number 10, and if his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep or of the goats, for a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring it a male without blemish. Verse 14, and if the burnt sacrifice for his offerings to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. So we see the the sacrifice can be from the cattle, an ox can be brought. It can be from the flock, that means a sheep or a goat, or it can come from the fowls, that would be a turtle dove or a pigeon. And so the range of animals is from the ox to the dove, and of course that is a wide disparity. Well, what does that broad range of animals mean? Well, it corresponds to the economic status of the people. In the Hebrew economy, the ox is a sacrifice for a wealthy man. A dove is a sacrifice for the poorest of people. And then between are the sheep and the goats. And that's for the middle class people, what they can afford. So roughly this is how it corresponds. It's out of order for a rich man to bring a dove and a poor man can't bring an ox. And so here, here is the point. That we are to give God to the best of our ability. That God's not going to refuse anyone based upon his wealth. He accepts the bird of the poor man in as high regard as he does the ox for the rich man. But we have to be very careful about this because we can't reverse that order. God will not accept a bird from a rich man. And the reason that he doesn't, because it's not his best. He can do better than that. So we're always told to bring the best that we can offer. Well, Jesus didn't die for the rich to the exclusion of the poor, neither did he die for the poor to the exclusion of the rich. But there are some, as you know, that believe that there's virtue in poverty. I mean, it's almost like that's a blessed thing if you're poor, just to be poor. We ought not to think that Christ didn't like rich people. The Bible doesn't teach that. He never said that, You're to hate rich people. He only taught that the rich should not put their riches above Him, to love their riches more than they do Him. But you have people that read the Beatitudes, and they see this. They see the false interpretation of Catholicism in it, and they see the Beatitude that says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and they interpret that, that the best thing that a person can do is take a vow of poverty. That would be the most pleasing to God. But Jesus isn't speaking of material goods in that passage. Poverty isn't necessary for anyone. If every Christian was poor, then we have no way to support the Lord's work. And so the poor in spirit doesn't refer to the material goods of a person, but it refers to the person's moral character, that he is spiritually bankrupt. That there is nobody that's anything without Christ. We are only rich in Christ. And then further, the diversity of animals displays a difference of disposition. An ox is an untiring animal. He represents strength and determination. The ox would be the animal in servant mode as he labors for the farmer. And they say that an ox will literally work himself to death if you keep pushing him. Well, is God then speaking of Christ in that picture? How often do we see Christ weary in his labor? Day and night, he worked for the people. He never left them hanging. He saw so many. He healed so many. He was often completely exhausted at the end of the day. And then what did he do? At times, he went and prayed all night long and then got up and started all over the next day. That's the servanthood of Christ. Then we have the lamb. The lamb pictures a different side of Christ. The lamb is never assertive. The lamb is docile. He doesn't complain. He follows the the shepherd in complete obedience and dependence. And we see that in Jesus as well, that as a lamb, he went to the slaughter and never opened his mouth. Pilate marveled that he made no defense at obvious, inaccurate, false accusations. And the only thing that Jesus replied against that was, you don't have any power against me at all, except that we're given to you from heaven. And then isn't it interesting that the Scripture continually refers to us as the Lord's sheep? That we are the sheep of His pasture? That we're to follow Him without reservation? That we bear the reproach of Christ as His sheep? Romans 8, 36, as it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And then thirdly, there are those doves. The dove is a picture of innocence. The dove is the meek and lowly Jesus. The dove is harmless and non-threatening. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpent and, serpents and harmless as doves. Paul said Christians should be harmless or blameless. Harmless as in Philippians chapter 2. So we have this diversity of, of, of people and attitude seen in the diversity of animals these are all different animals and yet they all have some very important common characteristics let me let me talk to you about a couple of those very important things in common first they were examined for excellence verse 3 if the offering if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd let him offer a male without blemish. So every animal is to very carefully examined to make sure that there are no marks of imperfection. There are no cuts, there are no bruises. This animal can't be sick. And that's the temptation. Bring the sick. They're going to die anyway. The disease can't be eaten. And they, you can't breed those animals. So why not bring them? They're going to die. And there are important lessons in that to be learned, that first of all, God gave His best. And there's nothing that matches God's best. And the plan of redemption is amazing in this, and that the infinite God might have given a lesser selection as His means of atonement. He might have done that. Or He might have decided no atonement at all, rather than do what He did. I mean, who can believe that the infinite God, who controls all things, would choose this as His method of redemption? Now, the only way that I can make sense of all of that is to say that perfect God can't be appeased by anything but is what is perfect. And the best is His Son, and the best is all that God accepts. And so we can't really search out God's mind to find out why He did all of these things, what His reasons are. We only know this one thing, that the perfect Son is the only way to accomplish a perfect, acceptable sacrifice that is of the sweetest savor. How can the sick ever represent him? And we also notice another thing, that this is a male without blemish. In this offering, it's always a male. It's the manhood of Christ that's under consideration. And not man being a generic term, uh, just a generic term for a human. Now, we, we don't have any patience for anyone who represents God as female or gender neutral. Oh, the male is the head. That's the natural order of creation. Secondly, this animal was delivered without demand. Verse 3, if his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, he shall offer it of his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. Of his own voluntary will. And so there wasn't anyone that was compelled to bring this offering. Well, I'd, I'd say if a person didn't do it, that he'd stick out like a sore thumb. But there wasn't anybody who said, you have to do this. Nobody was coerced. But they brought this, this offering because of their love and obedience. They, they brought it in their gratefulness to God and thanksgiving to Him for the land that He was about to give, for the inheritance that He would give, and for the protection of the Almighty as they went in to possess that land. And we see them continually in their sacrifices representing the very same things when they're in the land of Canaan. Well, we ask a question then. Does a voluntary sacrifice represent Christ? John 10:17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There wasn't anybody that could force Jesus to the cross. There isn't a power in the universe that's greater than Him. He's the Creator. He's before all things. It is by Him that all things consist. And so there isn't anybody who says to the Creator, you must do this or you must do that. Daniel 4.35, And all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? In Isaiah 45, verse 9, Woe unto him that striveth with his maker! Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth! Shall the clay say to him that fashioneth it, What makest thou? Or thy work? He hath no hands. Jesus said to Pilate, You don't have any power against me. That was a brazen statement that actually shook Pilate. Here is this beaten man standing before him in tattered clothing, beat within an inch of his life. And yet he says to Pilate, You don't have any power. This man from a notorious little town in Galilee spoke to Pilate and frightened him with this assertion, You have no power against me. The death of Christ was not an unfortunate accident. Don't ever feel sorry for Christ because he couldn't do anything about this, that he's helpless, that he's a victim. There isn't a greater travesty of God's Word that could be heaped upon Christ than to say that he is a victim of his circumstances. No, he taught the disciples far in advance what he would do, and then he set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem to make this very thing happen that he would die for sin. Now, the voluntary sacrifice also speaks of our faith in Christ. Um, I tire of people who say, well, you believe that people are forced into salvation because you believe they are predestined, they are elect, and so they don't have any choice in the matter. And they say these kinds of things because they don't want any interference with free will, but they can rest easy on this because we... Uh, We don't believe that anybody is forced to come to Christ. That when every person comes to Christ, they do so voluntarily, and they do it because they want to believe. And because they want to believe, they will believe, and they'll do nothing but believe. Now the difference in what we teach and what they teach is that we think, or, or I should say they think, that people that are depraved and spiritually dead want to believe in God. They don't. And they think that they can believe without any help from God. They can't. We say people must be enlightened before they can believe. They must receive an effectual call of the Holy Spirit before they will believe. And then when they receive that call, they gladly come to Christ. There's not one of them that fails to come to Christ because Jesus Himself said, My sheep hear My voice and they follow Me. Our statement of faith says nothing prevents the salvation of the greatest sinner on earth but his own inherent depravity and voluntary rejection of the gospel. You see, man is willing to do only one thing concerning his salvation, that is resist it. Always reject it. And he only comes to Christ when his spiritual eyes are opened. And when those eyes are opened, there is nothing that will keep him from Christ. And so he doesn't have to be forced. He isn't drag-kicking and screaming. Every sinner that comes to the Lord Jesus Christ comes in one of two ways. Either he comes with tears of joy, or he comes with smiles of uncontrolled enthusiasm. Now thirdly, I said there were two, but there are three. In bringing the sacrificial animal, it was partaken of personally. We're not talking about a corporate offering here. This isn't a group hug. Now, there were other offerings that were for the nation, but this one is personal. Joshua brought his. Caleb brought his. Moses brought his. You couldn't bring an offering for someone else. And when you come to Christ, it's it's you and you alone. You can't be saved for your family or anyone else. Your salvation doesn't cover them. But I've spoken to so many people, and, and I've asked this, are you a Christian? And the answer that comes back almost immediately is, my mom is... My, my grandpa was a preacher. Oh, that's real nice for them, but that is simply a disguise for, no, I'm not a Christian, because you can't be for someone else. You know who messes that up? Religion messes that up. Catholicism teaches that it's possible to be born into the church, that there is no faith required. Mom and dad will take care of everything. They'll stand good for you. They'll see that you get sprinkled. They'll make sure that the sign of the cross is made on your forehead. And they'll do that as a baby. That's good enough. No repentance, no faith. That's not necessary. Then you have Mormons that baptize for the dead. They're going to get you to heaven one way or the other. And so they they have 24-hour baptistries going, going every single day where they have locations that they run people through the baptistry... And in proxy baptisms, they baptize for the dead, reading their names out of newspaper obituaries. That's good enough to get you into heaven. Salvation, folks, is not a passenger train. Salvation is a unicycle. It's you and you alone. Personally, for you, you alone, you have to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ. Nobody can do it for you. Otherwise... There is no salvation. Now, as this offering shows in verse number 4, the one who offers must personally identify with the sacrifice. Well, let's conclude with this last point, and this finishes our study of the burnt offering. Number 3, is Israel the only invitee? Let me take you back to the beginning of verse number 1 and the meaning of Leviticus. The Hebrew Scriptures... Take the name of the book from the first word of the Hebrew text, and the Hebrew word that comes at the very beginning is this phrase translated into English, and the Lord called. That's what Leviticus literally means, and the Lord called, or simply literally, and he called. Spirit Sodiatis notes, this title is representative of the content and purpose of the book, namely the calling of God's people. I don't understand why that's so badly missed. God didn't say, go get the Canaanites, go get the Egyptians, round up all the Moabites and bring them, bring them all and we're going to have a big sacrifice. We're going to make sacrifices. No, this is not a covenant for anybody but Israel. And the big picture of atonement here is that it is for no others but Israel because they're God's chosen people. The Old Testament continuously follows Israel because they are God's people. And the only way that you see others are included is when they are proselyted to the Jewish religion and they live as Jews. And so in the Old Testament, you never find atonement made for any, in any sacrifice for heathen nations. Never. Never is there a sacrifice of atonement made for heathens. Now then in the New Testament... We're in a new dispensation, but the hope of salvation still remains only with those people that God calls, the ones that He chooses. In the Old Testament, they were called, my people, mine elect. Isaiah 45, verse 4, for Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect. Isaiah 65, verse 9, and I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob, and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it and my servants shall dwell there. Well, we ask the question, is the New Testament different from this? No, God still has a people that He calls His elect. They are called, they are connected to Christ by faith. They are the elect of God, and they're the ones who have part in this sacrifice. How many times have we read John 17 where Christ said, I don't pray for the world. He said, I pray for mine own. I pray for the elect, the ones that the Father gave me. In John 10, Jesus said, I know my sheep. He didn't say, I know all sheep. He said, I call my sheep by name. And that's easy for him to do because he wrote their names down in a book before the foundation of the world. Those are the ones that he leads out of the sheepfold, and those are the ones that he laid down his life for. You can find all of that in John chapter 10. And we wonder... Why, people don't see that the sheep in verse number 3 are the ones that he gave his life for in verse number 11 and verse 15. And then he mentions other sheep in verse 16. Those are Gentile believers who would believe. Those are people in the world, or in other words, a diversity of people. He chose and he gave his life for them, and he calls them all by name. Ephesians one four, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, Before Him in love. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Every offering has that character. Each of them is for Israel. There are none of these offerings that include anyone that is outside the elect so the Old Testament symbolizes Christ in many other ways. And how is it that we come to this one and we reject this very important truth? What about the symbolism that we find there? That there is no atonement, no sacrifice made for any others than God's elect. Isn't that the obvious conclusion that we have? When there are no sacrifices made for heathen nations... Now, these are, these are things that I wanted you to see about the burnt offering, that God revealed Christ in diverse ways. As we go through sacrifices, we'll see many, many different ways. All of that flows out of Old Testament sacrifices. And, in fact, you're going to learn more about Christ and tabernacle in the tabernacle worship than you will in any other thing that you study in the Bible. And so if your understanding is better because of this, and you love Christ more because of this, then every minute that we spend talking about these sacrifices, is blessed. John Flavel, the Puritan, said, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Now it's time for us to participate in what we do as a New Testament symbol of Christ. His death is pictured in the Lord's Supper. And it's not a literal sacrifice, you know that. This is a memorial It's a memorial of the once-for-all sacrifice that was made at Calvary. So I'd like for everyone to stand, if you would, and we're going to pray. And as I pray, the deacons are coming forward to prepare for the administration of the supper. And before we do that, we're going to sing the communion hymn. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we thank you for your word. The study of your word, how precious that is to us. To learn more about Jesus Christ, the Savior of this world. The Savior of the people who believe in Him. Lord, we thank You so much for giving us Jesus Christ. And then we also thank You that now we're able to, in a New Testament picture, look back on what Christ did. And as Old Testament people did, see uh, a sacrifice was made and the sacrifice represents the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, as we do it to remember what You did for us. For us who have put... Our faith in you and we thank you Lord for salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church. 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.